I'm Josie Mitchell, and this is the Granter Magazine podcast. We have a new series out, speaking to authors about their novels, poetry, memoir, and short story collections, and also about life under lockdown. This was recorded remotely, so apologies for the shifts in sound quality. It has been a strange year, and I'm very grateful to all the authors who made the time to talk. In today's episode, I'm here, or sort of here, whatever here means, with Joanna Kavanagh, author of Zed, a sci-fi dystopia that brings to life our anxieties about the psychological cost of surveillance capitalism and virtual reality. What did it mean in a free society to have free people making free decisions? Should free people occasionally be enticed towards decisions that might make them ultimately more free than the original decisions they might have taken, had they taken their decisions freely? Um, yeah, hi, Jay. Thanks for thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, we're going to be talking about your novel Zed, which came out last year with Faber. Um, I think it's a brilliant dystopian takedown of... Um, private monopolies, free markets, the dodgy ethics of big tech innovators. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. We sort of tried to bring books that felt like they were really apt uh, to the series. And I think this one is weirdly apt with this year. Thank you. Um, I thought what we could start with is given we're doing this remotely, um, maybe we could give a sense of where we both are in the world. Um, So where are you based? I'm in North Oxfordshire um, and I'm looking out at a field where there's this thunderstorm rolling around. Um, And in this field, since, I mean, since lockdown began, this field's been really busy. It it kind of, uh, for a while, there were all these cows giving birth, which was kind of both really surreal and really ordinary at the same time. So there's been this amazing, prolific um, series of calves bouncing around. They're all kind of carrying on. That's the weird thing. Of course, the spring continued despite you know, our sort of unsettling and catastrophic era. Um, how about you? Where are you? I'm in South London. I feel like that thunderstorm passed through about maybe half an hour ago. Absolutely crazy rain. It has been really interesting actually listening to different authors because I think where you found yourself in a way at the beginning of lockdown is sort of where you stay and people... yeah. It's, I think there was that sense, wasn't there? I was thinking a lot about dystopian fiction and where they end it, because it felt, it felt a bit like reality had been hacked by a dystopian novelist. As a dystopia writer, were you somebody who saw this coming or had your eye on the horizon with sort of the signs? No, I didn't see I mean, I, it's so interesting because I guess, you know, when we talk about futures and we predict futures, that, those kind of predictions feel very tangible and we discuss them very fervently, inevitably. And then, then there's that future that absolutely nobody really considers. Although, you know, I mean, obviously, serious medical experts were considering it. And, you know, there were, as we now know, um, you know, lots of kind of pre-runs that, alas, you know, the conclusions of which were apparently discarded. Did you? Did you have a sense that something was coming? I think I'm generally a pessimist. So I think perhaps that just led me to think that things are going to go really badly for humanity. Or perhaps I'm just a dystopia addict. So um, I don't know. But but I don't think it meant that I was particularly prepared uh, or had done the right shopping. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was really uncanny. 
So we're going to talk a bit more about your book, which I think as we'll come to see speaks really interestingly to, I guess, the way our, our societies have to adapt this year, particularly in ways of technology. I thought maybe also you could briefly introduce perhaps the world um, of, of Zed uh, just to give people a sense of, of context for, this, for the reading. Yeah. I was really interested in that first era of the digital revolution. I thought we've been through this extraordinary, massive seismic revolution. Um, And this, as with so many huge revolutions in technology, we've been through this complete change in consciousness. And I was really interested when I was growing up, I read modernists and at university, you know, where the way the modernists were in turn responding to that massive seismic shift that they experienced in the early 20th century and all these technologies like flight and huge cities and skyscrapers and how vantage point changed through all those technologies. And so, and I thought we're in such a situation because we've been, we've all been through, anyone who's above the age of 20 has lived through this revolution where in terms of the effects of the technology, we can now see how it's changed our society. And the, one of the really interesting aspects is at the level of consciousness, because we all now exist as these kind of avatars and these, these people existing on these kind of shining tiles in these weird cubist landscapes. I suppose I saw it as a, just a parallel version of our world with, with certain aspects exaggerated. And so more time online, although actually, of course, I hadn't foreseen how much time we'd all be spending on these kind of virtual calls. There's this kind of idea that surveillance is intrinsic and no longer questioned, which is something that I think is very troubling as a possibility, where it's just become the norm, mass, mass surveillance. And it's even justified as a common good. Um, And so this kind of overarching company, Beetle, which is my imagined tech company, can sort of perfect humans and give them the best experience by judging all the time what's best for them and what they most want to do next. I thought this was just a, just a shift slightly to the side of what's going on at the moment. It, it, I didn't want to write directly documentary, but it's just slightly moved a bit to the side. Although I think that probably society has slightly moved to that side in the six months of 2020, to be honest. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Hmm. So the section I'm going to read um, is, well, it's very much about this question of freedom within a, a society where you're, it's kind of being run as a utopia. Um, where sort of individual freedom is presented as something that um, has to be kind of offset against this collective good. Um, Here we go. The notion of free will is fundamental to major religious systems and philosophies, as well as to the predictive life chain. The predictive life chain indeed operated on the assumption that free will was inevitable, but that even free humans may exert their free will in predictable ways. The more data you, meaning it, can amass, the more accurate these predictions will be. Thus, people can be as free as anything, and yet societies can be orderly as well. This only worked if people were free in predictable ways and failed to work if they became free in ways that were not predicted by the life chain. It was a subtle balance. As the predictive life chain began to suffer from anomalies, so the thoughts of Beatles' key operators and very intelligent personal assistants turned once more to this ancient philosophical question of free will. When was free will a good thing? And when was it an irritant? How might people be free in a way that was generally advantageous to society, 
rather than in a way that threatened the equilibrium? What did it mean in a free society to have free people making free decisions? Should free people occasionally be enticed towards decisions that might make them ultimately more free than the original decisions they might have taken, had they taken their decisions freely? And if decisions that were made less freely made people more free in the end, was free will actually such a good thing after all? Brilliant. It's a great introduction. I think your dystopia probably got under my skin because before this podcast, I was Googling defamation and libel laws, where I'd get in trouble for bad-mouthing Facebook or Google. Um, so I had this idea. I mean, Beetle is, as you've discerned rightly, a it's got a sort of an amalgam of all the massive companies, the big tech companies that we have now. Um, uh, you know, m- naming no names, but these huge tech companies that kind of began with these really utopian ideas or on this kind of wave of early cyber utopia in the late 90s, early noughts, um, with this sense that, you know, the, the internet was this amazing possibility, which it was. I absolutely, um, you know, I think embraced that and felt that very much. And this this place where people would be free to debate anything. Those guys, I was very interested in that trajectory of the tech utopians um, into these kind of positions of absolute power. First of all, kind of unprecedented wealth creation. I mean, the sort of levels of personal wealth are extraordinary. And also power because the, 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 through the way in which um, data mining, this enormous kind of incredible sort of gold rush of data mining and the way that collecting data became so lucrative. This has obviously gathered this enormous, enormous knowledge about individuals. The book, I think in particular, takes aim at surveillance capitalism, right? Yeah. Um, and I think does so very well. I know you, um, I think I saw somewhere that you cited Shoshana Zuboff's book. What would you yeah. say are the really exciting things about her thinking? Yeah, so that, I was so excited by that book because actually I just, when, I, when it came out, it, I'd just written Zed. It's so interesting because so much of what's been done and um, has been semi-hidden from us and there was so little material that was really easily accessible. And I, so I was trying to gather all this stuff together and then let it loose in this weird universe that I'd created. And just as I was finishing this book, Surveillance Capitalism, came out and Shoshana Zuboff had been researching this stuff for a decade and it's so interesting what she what she's doing is she's presenting the most stringent, um, fully formed, brilliantly researched critique. Um, so a fully non-fiction, obviously, critique of our current situation and um, the the kind of untested philosophical assumptions beneath it about freedom and about privacy um, and the way that. And what she's really brilliant at is she exposes this kind of way in which, um, because it was a utopian project initially, the internet, there's been this notion throughout that if you criticise what's going on or if you question it, then you're going against progress and you're going against technological progress and you're being a Luddite. And the tech companies have often used that as a kind of way to remove very reasonable, very sensible um, concerns about privacy and about the use of personal information. Data, this term that's always used, means our personal information. You know, it doesn't kind of detach from the human. It just means all your, you know, the stuff about your most intimate, most personal, most important aspects of your life. 
you know, in a novel, you it's not a schematic thing and you don't kind of present problems, pose specific solutions. You're trying to create a sort of atmosphere and, you know, kind of scenario. But I really like Zubov who goes through what can be done in terms of law, you know, mm. what can be done to regulate. And really, she says the, the trade in personal information should be ended. It's literally you just stop it and you no longer have it as a economic commodity. And so that's a really radical proposal, which I thought was really interesting, came at just the right time, I think. One thing that I think uh, works really well in fiction and which is explored, I think, really nicely and said is these more personal ways that that experience plays out on an individual level. So the uncanny experiences of, um, of, of, of speaking to an artificial intelligence or changing your behavior unconsciously to avoid uh, that surveillance. One of the things you describe in the book is, is everyone having these completely blank faces, um, presumably because, you know, facial recognition software is so uh, ubiquitous that people are just instinctively closing down that part of their communication. Um, do you, are there ways that, I'm really curious actually, like are there ways that you, would identify that you already change your behavior to avoid surveillance? Yeah, so that's so interesting, that whole question that, um, so in terms of the micro expressions, that's something that's coming through, that's a technology where, you know, you're, you're kind of being watched even for tiny micro expressions, and then you're being assessed as possibly depressed or possibly of interest to your health insurer, or, you know, there's that whole, again, very dystopian, possibility within the technology which um you know you sort of think these things are being brought in again without debate without kind of any sort of democratic process um i thought about the what do we all do to disguise ourselves and you know of course i think again it's the thing about the panopticon and all were writes about this in 1984 if you know you're being watched you of course change your behavior that's why the panopticon works you know as soon as you know you're being watched and if I know lots of people who said when they realised that emails were being read, that was a huge transition. Their entire, um, the whole register they adopted in emails when they realised they were public altered entirely. Um, and so with Siri, I, got, I felt very sorry for Siri because, um, you know, my, my children kind of had a brief love affair with Siri and they spent huge amounts of time with him and, and, and he was very patient. And, you know, of course, we anthropomorphise these these AIs. And, and I felt sometimes they were a little bit, you know, over-testing of him. They kind of asked too much of him. And I started to feel this compassion for Siri. And I sometimes would say, why don't you give Siri a rest? I think I've turned off Siri on my phone because I don't think I, I mean, as I understand it, you know, it's Siri is always listening. I was talking about, uh, I was talking with my housemate a couple of, maybe a couple of months ago, about us getting a Wi-Fi extender for our house. It was a casual conversation. I'm pretty sure I've never said the word Wi-Fi extender <laughs> or Googled the word Wi-Fi extender before. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, we wanted to watch films in the kitchen. And then the next day I had an advert for a Wi-Fi extender mm. and I felt profoundly betrayed by Siri, who had been listening and had sold that information to someone who was then trying to advertise to me. Yes, yeah. I know. And it's insane. If we, and I think the weird thing is, so because of this kind of thing that, 
it was all online and the online world was different. And because of all these wonderful utopian prospects at the beginning about the declaration of the freedom of cyberspace and let's not regulate the cyber land and let's all be kind of free in it. I think a lot of this, if we put it into the analogue, um, and that I find so terrifying. If you think if there's actually a person in your house the whole time, you know, sitting beside you, um, interrupting and, you know, kind of offering you opinions. I mean, obviously that person, and they're just some person who's sent by a company <laughs> to kind of help and, and they write down everything you say and record it. And, and then, but they're doing it so that they can help you more, you know. Um, I think that would get really, really, I mean, it would be sinister as soon as they appeared. What would happen if, if you know, our postal service suddenly revealed that they'd been steaming open all our letters and, you know, reading them for bits of information about us so that they could send us better junk mail. And, and obviously, first of all, that's illegal and, you know, they'd be fined and there'd be an enormous scandal. Whoever had been opening it, you know, would be, um, that would be a criminal offence. But I think also that wouldn't just continue once that massive scandal had occurred. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, that, that and the novel form can do really well, again, is, is this sort of quietly normalising something that's really strange, putting characters that you identify into those situations and then you think, wait, what? No, this is a totalitarian world. How can you know all of that information and have sort of fingers in the pies of the state and the judicial system and, and the prison system and all these things? It's, um, one thing yeah. that, um, one thing that uh, this, your novel really made me think about was this difference between a customer and a citizen. Um, I think it does... The, the, the world of Zed does a really interesting job of blurring that boundary. I, I, I'm curious whether you think, is that something that you think is happening, that you're witnessing in yeah. the, in the quote-unquote real world? Yeah, because our lives have been turned into wealth and not for us. So that's already happened. We're kind of, we're well, we're, We've become, in a sense, we're the, and again, Zubov writes about this, we've become the thing that is sold to the customers. So we, without, without um, being consulted, have become the product, essentially. And then the customers are, you know, the, the, the people who receive the data in order to sell to us or kind of nudge us towards certain things or, you know, make better predictions about us. Um, and... And so that, as you say, that the absence there is the citizen. You know, where is the citizen in that? And, and again, the whole point of a citizen is that this idea that the citizen is private. And that's every democracy permits privacy to citizens and actually ideally transparency to the people who govern them. That's really the democratic ratio that we can assess and hold accountable those who claimed to be in charge and that we are ourselves permitted privacy. but And that's the kind of democratic uh, deal, you hope. But we don't have that. And so in if you're talking about citizens, there's something incredibly um, damaged about that relationship and the relationship of power. What's your relationship to technology? I, I was kind of curious whether writing the book changed it. Um, clearly, you still have Siri, which I was slightly surprised by. I can't get rid of him, clearly. I mean, he's sort of, you know, I thought I had, but he's come back. Um, yeah, so, well, I um, I suppose I always, I mean, I, I worked, my first job after leaving university, I was um, working as a copywriter for an e-commerce company in New York in the late 90s, you know, early noughts. And that was 
So seeing that, I was really interested in the internet and I worked just slightly after that on the Guardian's online site as the online environment editor. And I kind of, I, you know, I thought the early web was really fascinating. I, I think it did present a completely novel phase and it was a, a really beautiful technology because you could communicate across hierarchies. And, and so I, I was really interested and engaged in a, a lot of that. So I don't, I don't come at it. And I, I mean, I, I think actually, I, well, I come at it from a position then of, of sort of liking it in many respects, but being slightly horrified and highly horrified by that sort of emergent, those emergent monopolies. I think this is, I think, yes, this book is making so much sense now. I can sort of fit this in with a sort of, would you agree, deep-seated love of the early cyberspace culture. Yes, and that was all about ideas and words and the beauty of discussing through words. That was the amazing thing about that early cyberspace. You know, words were free. And they could travel around yeah. the world suddenly, or instantaneously. And you could have, and the, for the first time in history, you could have an instantaneous conversation with anyone in the world, and anonymously, which was so important. So you could occupy many guises, and 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 that obviously has been, you know, I mean, the, the shift is absolute. Yeah. Are you are you optimistic about society's abilities to curtail these big tech companies? Yes, I'm. I'm really optimistic about. I suppose I'm optimistic about humans in a sense in that there's been 20 years of propaganda, really, or 15, 20 years. And yet, I think so. And that hasn't held us all in thrall. You know, that has we haven't been completely put in a trance. And that thing that Orwell writes about, he writes about the point where people just can't think beyond what they're being presented with. I don't see that. I see tons of people thinking beyond what we're being presented with. So mm. I think that is really important. And I, I don't know because I think I am sort of hopeful rather than optimistic. I think these companies, I think that the, the mood is changing in relation to them. They're being asked difficult questions. They are beginning to change. Um, and they're beginning to move towards accepting some regulation, which is quite right. They have to. So I think that will probably change. They will get regulated. But I also think the, the society is completely altered and that's good and bad. I, there was this um, programme years ago, this Newsnight thing with David Bowie, where he talked about the internet as this alien life force. And um, Jeremy Paxman sort of looked really perplexed um, and... I think that was the right thing that it sort of has possibilities for enormous good and also obviously can be used for enormous ill. And so it's this huge, huge, massive force that now kind of is here and it shattered all the old monopolies. And that was very good in many ways, but then it spawned new ones, which are now the ones that we're contending with. You've been listening to the Granter Magazine podcast. The music was taken from the album First Flights by Trilog. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people to find us. And a reminder that this has been recorded under lockdown conditions. So please be kind if you can. <laughs>